morning, and so I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22 and going down to verse 30. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one in the seat back there for you. We've been working our way as a church through the Gospel of Luke, and we've noticed this theme that Jesus has been wanting us to drink in deeply of, and that is this theme of the kingdom of God. What is it like? How does it come to be? How do we to get out of the kingdom of darkness and get into the kingdom of light? How should you live in this world so that you can enjoy life in the next? And what must we do to enter into the kingdom of God? These are all very, very important questions for us to answer because they deal with the most precious part of you and the eternal part of you, and that is your soul. How does one save his or her soul to be able to enjoy life everlasting? We're going to try to finish up what we started last week as we began to look at these verses a little bit more closely, but we left off with a couple important questions that I want to try to answer this week, like what exactly are we striving against? If Jesus is teaching us here in these verses to strive, what is it exactly that I'm striving against? And then what practical steps can I take to strive to enter into the kingdom of God? So I want to read these verses straight away and try to jump in a little bit about where we left off last week by reading our text together so uh, that we have it before our minds and our hearts. I want to invite you to stand if you're able to do so for the reading of God's Word. Again, it's Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. God's inerrant and inspired Word says this, And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he's, he's And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table In the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last who will be first, and some who are first who will be last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word that it corrects us and instructs us and exhorts us. Help us to be good listeners, Lord. Help us to disentangle our minds from the thoughts and the cares of this world so that we might understand what your word has to say to us this morning. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, instruct us, give us godly wisdom through your word. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, as we began to look at this text last week, we saw that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He had wrapped up his Galilean ministry and is working his way from city to city and from village to village, teaching and proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. We saw that in verse 22. And we said he's not necessarily taking this direct path to Jerusalem, but he's weaving his way across the countryside until he gets to his final destination, where he will ultimately do what God's hand had purposed and predestined to occur, as Acts 4.28 tells us, and that is for him to lay down his life for his sheep. He is determined and resolute on doing the will of the Father. More than any of the other Gospels, Luke shows us the unwavering resolve that our Lord has in going to Jerusalem to offer Himself up to death for us, even death on a cross. But someone from the crowd, they get this, they're starting to get a glimpse, they're getting a clue that what Jesus is teaching regarding the kingdom And he asked this question in verse 23. He said, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And there was some confusion on this person's understanding about the coming of the Messiah. And that it was predominantly understood that the Messiah would come and liberate the Jews from its Roman occupation. The Messiah would save all God's chosen people, the Israelites, set up the divinic throne in power and glory and reign forever so that Israel would once again be supreme among all the nations. But that's not what Jesus has been teaching them, especially when we consider the parable of the mustard seed that Jesus taught in verse 19. You know, this guy must have been thinking to himself, the kingdom's like a, a mustard seed? so small and inconspicuous. It's, is that really how this kingdom is going to come about? So he asked Jesus, are there just a few who are being saved? But Jesus did not answer him directly. He didn't give the person the answer that he necessarily wanted, but it was the answer that the person needed and everyone else in earshot of his voice. Because he takes this, this potentially distracting question, this potentially speculative question on the nature of salvation from this individual. And then he he turns it around and he puts it into a very pointed challenge that requires personal evaluation for everyone there and for every single one of us here for that matter. Verse 24 is a command from Jesus. It is written in the present imperative form, meaning that it is for all of us. Because in verse 24, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. And we said that this word there for strive is agonizomai in the Greek. It's where we get the English word for agonize. That is to say, take pains to enter through the narrow door. Exert yourself to enter through the narrow door. It will require you to count the cost. It will require you to renounce your allegiances to anything but Jesus Christ. And we saw that this word is sometimes agonizomai, is translated fight. Because to enter into the Christian life is to enter into the fight. To enter into the Christian life is to say yes to the battle. 
And at this point last week, we asked this question. What exactly are we fighting against? What is it that you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, should be agonizing and fighting with? I want to give you a few things here. It means, first of all, that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you must go in hand-to-hand combat with your flesh. You must battle your flesh. This is what the great hymn writer meant when he said, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Because our hearts, even after conversion, are weak and unstable. You must battle your flesh. In other words, you will have to say no to worldly temptations. You will have to say no to sinful cravings. You will have to buffet your body. You will have to discipline yourself. You will have to deny yourself, take up your cross, the instrument of death, and die to self and live for Christ, and you must do it daily. The Apostle Paul, he knew of this battle when he wrote in Romans chapter 7, he said in verse 23, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. How many people try to say that, you know, when they read Romans 7 and 8, and they say, well, Romans 7 is Paul before he was a Christian, and Romans 8 Romans chapter 8 is when he became a Christian, but that's simply not true. What Paul is talking about is his current struggle in the flesh that he undergoes daily in the pursuit of Jesus Christ and the war within, and he looks to him who has conquered sin and death, that is Jesus Christ. He asks the question at the end of chapter 7, who, who will set us free from this bondage of sin and death? In chapter 8 he says, thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ. He also wrote of this battle of the flesh in, uh, the Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, when he says this. He says, do you not know? Meaning, in other words, what he's saying here is, do you have two brain cells that are touching together? Do you not know? This is basic. This is elementary. Do you not know that those who run win a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. In other words, what he's saying here is that you will have to break from the pack. You must throw off those things that are going to hold you back and hold you down. You must rise up. You must kick it into high gear. You must break away from the mediocrity and the mundane that is so prevalent in our world today that masks itself as biblical Christianity. But he goes on in verse 25, he says, Everyone who competes in a game exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating in the air. But I discipline my body, and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. If an athlete trains and disciplines himself to win a temporary prize, how much more should we as Christians train and discipline ourselves for the crown that will last forever? But practically what Paul is saying here is that he's not going to let food allow him to fall into gluttony. He's not going to use his liberty to consume alcohol to cause him to stumble into alcoholism and drunkenness. He's not going to have a bunch of possessions in order to have him fall into worldliness and materialism. He's not going to allow money to consume and control him so that he has to battle greed. 
In a word, Paul is going to do whatsoever is necessary to battle against his flesh, bring it into subjection to Christ so that he might win him forever. He is going to be an absolute sin-killing machine so that nothing will cause him to be disqualified from the race that he's running. John Owen once famously said that you should be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You must do battle with your fleshly desires. The second thing that you must fight against is that you must do battle with the devil. Jesus told Peter that Satan demanded to have him so that he may sift him like wheat. And we get this imagery of taking the wheat and throwing it up in the air and threshing it in a basket up and down, up and down, right? And Satan is wanting to do the same thing with Peter, throwing him up and down, up and down, trying to cause him to lose his footing, trying to cause him to lose his faith in Christ. But the enemy of old, he never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's the prince of darkness. He's a murderer. He's a liar. And it says that he masquerades as an angel of light. Because by all appearances, he appears to be a messenger of truth. Because he's well disguised. And practically speaking, beloved, this means that the true gospel is not found in every so-called Christian book you you pick up. This means that it is not found in every so-called radio program that you set your ears to. This is not found on every so-called Christian television show that's out there. It's not found in every so-called Christian movie that's out there for you to watch. And the only way that you are going to know if it is something true or something false is to know the truth from the Word of God. That's the only way. If you ever watch the Antiques Roadshow on PBS, people bring in their antiques and they get them appraised for the value of the antique that they have. And occasionally people will bring in these these lamps that look like Tiffany lamps. They're about 18, 20 inches tall and they're just a table lamp with stained glass shades that, uh, that have been around for about 100 years or so. But the most expensive table lamp that has ever sold at auction was a Tiffany lamp. It sold at uh, Christie's Auction House four years ago for the price of $2.8 million. And yes, it's a table lamp. And yes, I said $2.8 million. And so whenever you have things that go super crazy sky high like that, copycat products start to pop up and appear all over the place. And so people will come to this, this antique show and they'll bring their Tiffany-looking lamp that they found at this antique store and they're super excited. They're hoping that it's the one and the appraiser's going to give them some great big dollar figure. But then the appraiser takes a look at it and says, guess what? You've got a fake. It's not a Tiffany lamp and it's worth about 20 bucks. You've got a junk lamp masquerading as the real deal. But the only way that this appraiser knows this is because he has handled the real thing so many times. He's studied all the markings of a genuine lamp. He's done his research, and so when he sees a fake, he knows it right away. And the same thing, is the sa- it's the same way that Satan does with the truth of the gospel. He masquerades as the real deal. He looks like a multi-million dollar table lamp, and he's just got this, he's just a fake and a copycat. 
And the only way that you are going to know this is by frequently and regularly handling the truth found in the Word of God. So when everyone tells you, hey, you've got to rush out and buy this Christian book, or you've got to go see that Christian movie that's out there, and everyone tells you, you've got to see it, you'll be able to discern whether it's telling you the truth or it's not. Because your number one weapon in dealing with the lies of Satan is by wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as Ephesians 6.17 tells us. So that means you've got to get your nose in that book. You've got to get your nose in God's Word. 1 Peter 5.8 also tells us about Satan, that he's, a, he's our adversary, and he's like that of a lion. And he's seeking whomever he can devour. And if that's true, if Satan is like a lion, how many of us are running up to him and saying, here, kitty, kitty, and trying to pet the thing in regards to temptation? You must resist him. You must flee. You must fight against his temptations. You must learn of his schemes and his ways that will cause you to sin. And you must watch and pray and strive against him. The third thing that you must fight and strive against is the world. The world. And when we're talking about the world here, we're not talking about the physical universe. But what we're talking about is its corrupt value system. We're talking about ideologies. We're talking about human wisdom and everything else that finds itself at odds with God. It's the system in which Satan is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And he is in constant conflict with God. We're told in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, it says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We're told that friendship with the world is hostility with God in James 4.4. And in Romans 12.2, we're told not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, you must go against the battle, into battle rather, against the desire for riches and all of its allurements. You must have distinct battle lines drawn so that lust does not gain a foothold in your life. You must fight against the desire to have the the biggest and the newest and the best all the time and learn to be content with the provisions that God has given you. When your neighbor gets something brand new and, and super cool, you must fight against coveting it. You must resist pride and be watchful when it sprouts up in the most subtle of places. You must do battle with the world and all of its allurements because it will betray you like a kiss from Judas. Proverbs 27, 12, it says, A prudent man sees evil, and he hides himself. The naive, they proceed, and they pay the penalty. That means a prudent man looks ahead. The prudent man knows that there's danger coming. He knows there's an enemy, and he's making preparations for it. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, we must be aware of these things that seek to do us harm. And watch and pray so that we don't lose heart. We must be engaged in the fight. And so Jesus tells us that we must strive to enter the narrow door. You must agonize to enter in through the narrow door. 
Should you desire to enter into the kingdom of God through the narrow door, you must fight, you must strive and do battle with those things that will wage war against your soul. A religion that costs nothing and requires nothing is worth nothing. But I want you to also notice something else in verse 24 there. Notice that it says it is the narrow door. There are not many doors. It is the narrow door. There are not many ports of entry. There are not many paths to God that we're all climbing up this mountainside to gain entry into the kingdom of God. No way. There is only one door. There is only one way. There is only one way by which you may enter the kingdom of God. And he is the door to that kingdom. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. John 14.6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said in John chapter 10, Truly, truly, I say to you that I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. And he continue on in verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There is only one kingdom. There is only one God. There is only one gospel. There is only one point of entry. And there is only one narrow door. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Son or daughter of the King. Beloved of the Lord. Are you striving to enter in through that narrow door? Are you doing battle with the enemies of your soul in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you in the fight of your faith and pressing on being diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed? Or are you being spiritually lazy? Are you allowing the enemy to continually grab a foothold and an advance in your life? Are you no more than a spiritual couch potato and have been negligent in seeking after the Lord? Jesus tells you, you must strive. You must enter through the narrow door. Hebrews 3.12, it's a warning for all of us here. It says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Jesus continues on in verses 24 and 25. He says, For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. This is a terrifying picture. Because we see from this verse that the door will not always stay open. There will be a time when the Lord closes the door and then suddenly people will want to enter in and they will not be able to. We're all living on borrowed time. Does this not remind us of of Noah? Think about what God said in Genesis 6-3. He said, my spirit will not strive with man forever. And why is that? Because in verse 5 of Genesis 6, he says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thoughts and his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And then we see, we get to Genesis chapter 7, and what do we have? We have one of the most horrifying events in all of human history. We have the flood. Noah was a preacher of righteousness 
for 120 years. 120 years with no converts other than his family. They ignored his pleas. They thought he was crazy. But then the time came for the flood to begin, and no one entered the ark except Noah and his family. And God said to Noah in Genesis 7-1, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. And then after everyone entered, God shut the door to the ark. Only a few were saved, but many perished. Perhaps when the storm crowds started to gather, the people started to come to their senses, started to remember what Noah had said. When the water started to rise and they remembered and thought to themselves, I'll just come to that door, I'll go to the ark and they'll let me in. But it was too late. We are all living on borrowed time because the door will not always be open. You don't want to play games with God and think that you're going to live your life however you want on your terms and you're just going to say some magic words and God's going to let you into His kingdom because it does not work like that. You're not going to be able to dupe God. And secondly, you won't always have time. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. The door is open now, and the Master has invited you to come in. And beloved, I hate to bring in my other job to this, but you know, where I'm down at an emergency management class, and they're talking about the train crash in California. 25 people died. Two, a freight train and a passenger train went head on. And some of the rescuers that were there that day were in my class. And they got to the last person. And they had to get special equipment to come in and disentangle her because the two engines had gone into the passenger compartment. And he said, we had to get a special rescue tool to come in to cut the seat because none of our stuff would do it. We didn't have enough power to do it. We had to go to the airport. And he said, when we finally started to peel away the layers... All that we could see was a police badge. An officer on our way home from work that day, Friday night, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And that's all they could find, hardly ever. Just on our way home from work. You don't know how much time you have. Don't mess with God. Today is the day of salvation. The Master has invited you to come. Come to Him. You are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Today is the day of salvation. The time is now because that time is running out for you. And we've seen this illustrated over and again and over and over again by our Lord in just the last chapter. He said, He told the rich man in Luke twelve twenty, who was storing up treasures for himself, He said, You fool! Tonight, this very night, your soul is required of you, and who will now will have all your possessions? Jesus said to be ready in Luke 12, 40, for the Son of Man comes at an hour that you don't expect. Luke 12, 58, Jesus exhorts his hearers, get right with God like a guilty person going before a magistrate. In the parable of the fig tree, in Luke 13, 6 through 9, there is a time when the vineyard grower will say, enough of this fruitless tree, cut it down. All these are pictures and images of that final day when the great final judgment will come upon mankind because you and I, we won't live forever. 
And that door will not always be open and you will knock on that door and you will ask to come in. But the only thing you will hear are the most terrifying words that you could possibly hear in your life coming from the other side of that door saying, I do not know where you are from. It's too late. You will try and repent too late. You will try and be remorseful over your sin too late. You will try to plead with God too late. You will be sorry for your sin. You will try to gain entry too late. You will be convinced now that the narrow door is the way too late. And if you reject entry into this narrow door today, you will come to know too late what even the devil and all of his legions have known since the beginning of time, and that is as Christ is the Holy One of God. J.C. Ryle once said, Hell itself is nothing but truth known too late. The door will be closing. Are you striving to enter into this door? But notice in verse 26, the pleas of the people outside of that closed door. It says, then we will begin to say, you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Now we have to remember that Jesus is talking to some of the most religious people in all the world that has ever been, the Pharisees and the scribes and the multitudes that were there in His presence when He said these things. But these people have been convinced themselves that they should enter the kingdom of God because they had some familiarity with Christ. They think they should enter in because they had a few moments with Christ. It says, we ate and drank with Him. We shared some moments together. We had some familiarity with you. We did some religious things together. We even listened to you teach in our streets a couple of times, and yet Jesus denies them entry into the kingdom of God. And today, beloved, this is the same people that have got one foot in the church and the other foot's in the world, and they're just comfortable being in either place. It doesn't matter to them. They come to church, but they're unchanged by anything they ever hear. They come just as they are, because God loves them right where they're at, right? But they just stay there and there's no growth in godliness and no fruit in their lives. They say to themselves, you know what? I bowed my head that day. I raised my hand that day. I walked that aisle that one time. I signed that pledge card. But they're just playing the game of church. They're claiming union with Christ when all the while they have never enjoyed communion with Christ. They put on the team jersey. They've never played the game. They're just content to sit on the sidelines. They know nothing of pleading at the throne of grace. They know nothing of this battle against sin. They know nothing of weaning their hearts from the world. They know nothing of His tender mercies and how they are new every day. They know nothing of taking up their cross and following after Him. They know nothing of submitting to the Lordship of His will. It's a religion without repentance. It's a religion that has no boundaries whatsoever. They got a familiarity with Christ, but they have no intimacy with Christ. It's no different than you getting a picture with some famous celebrity one time or going to a meet and greet and and you get to meet one of your favorite preachers or anything like that on the internet and you get a picture with them and you say you've met them, but you don't know them. You have a familiarity with them, but you don't have intimacy with them. And when the door is shut, And those who claim familiarity with Jesus will say, we ate and drank with you, Lord, and you taught in our streets. And Jesus says to them, you're self-deceived. I tell you, I do not know where you are from. In verse 27, he says, depart from me, all you evildoers. He'll say to you, I never knew you. 
I never had a relationship with you. I don't even know where you are from, so you need to leave this place. Do you know Jesus Christ intimately this morning? Notice I didn't say that do you know Christ perfectly this morning, but are you seeking after intimacy with Him? If we were to strip down the veil of your life, and we were to look at your heart and see the trajectory of your life towards Christ and towards godliness or toward holiness, or would we see the trajectory of your heart towards the world? More importantly, if God would look at your heart, what would He see? Would He see that it's towards Him? Would He see that it's towards the world? Are you truly striving to enter in through that narrow door? Because if it's not, the only expectation that you will have at the end of your life is to hear Jesus Christ say to you, Depart from me, you evildoer. But if you can't get through the door, if the door is closed off to you, where will you go? You won't stand outside that door forever. In verse 28, he tells us, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And what he's talking about here is the torments of hell. Eternal sadness. Eternal gloom. Eternal weeping. Eternal punishment. As Thomas Watson once said, time will never finish it and tears will never quench it. There are only two destinations for you to go at the end of your life. There are only two paths in which you will go to get there. The one is narrow and it leads to life everlasting, but the other is broad and it leads to your destruction. Proverbs 11.23 says, The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. But notice also that he tells them that they are going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. These people thought they were going to ride on their forefathers' coattails. They prided themselves on being the children of Abraham and being the descendants of Abraham and heirs to the promises, but they will be shocked that they themselves won't be in heaven. And listen, absolutely none of you here today will be in heaven because of someone else's relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as salvation by proxy. You won't be able to ride into heaven on the coattails of your parents. You won't be able to coast into heaven because of who your pastor is. You will not be able to gain entry through the narrow door because of your membership of a certain church. The only way that you are going to be able to enter into the kingdom of God is through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Solus Christus in the Latin. Christ alone. That's why we sing that song. Acts 4.12 says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. But even more shocking to his Jewish listeners is the fact that even though they themselves will not enter the kingdom of God, is that the Gentiles will gain entry into the kingdom of God. He says in verse 29, And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, every people group represented, an international banquet of fellowship and salvation and eternal blessing. It will make the Grace Fellowship Church buffet look like a hot dog stand. 
Okay? But think about eternity being with all the great men and women of the faith. Men who have conquered lions. Men who have been stoned to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. Men who were imprisoned and mistreated because of the cause of Christ. Men who were sawn in two. Rahab, hearing her stories of how she helped the spies. Being with men and women from all over the world who have found soul-satisfying pleasure in God and looked to Christ and found Him to be their joy and his, their treasure. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. From the east and from the west, from the north and the south, believers from all nations will come to their master's house and those who have entered in by striving through the narrow door. Christianity may have a very exclusive point of entry through Jesus Christ and Christ alone, but in another sense, it is the most inclusive religion in which people from all over the world can gain entry into it. You don't have to be born in the right family. You don't have to have the right last name. You don't have to be smarter than everyone else. You don't have to have the most greatest and spiritual of all upbringings. Otherwise, I could not be standing here speaking to you now. God can save all kinds of people. You just got to be a sinner. You just got to be born again. You just got to be looking to Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. And that's why he says in verse 30, Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Galatians 3.28 tells us, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor freeman, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the realm of salvation, we will all be equals with none greater than the other. Are you striving to enter into the kingdom through the narrow door this morning. Richard Sibbs said, to live as if we do not believe the excellency of the things promised or the terror of things threatened shows that we are not truly persuaded of them. A dead faith is no faith at all. Let us shame ourselves. Lord, do I profess that I see Christ in heaven and I see myself there? Where is my love and my joy? Why does my heart run to other things? Lord, open up my heart for your throne. Teach my heart to love you. Open my understanding to conceive of holy things. Take off my love, my joy, and my delight from earthly things and plant them where they should be and enlarge them and fill my heart with yourself as you have made it for yourself. Are you willing to give up whatsoever is necessary to enter in through that narrow door? Are you willing to say to God, whatever you would have me do, wherever you would have me go, whatever you would have me go through, have your will done in me, God, so that I may have Christ. You must fight for your faith and you must strive to enter through the narrow door. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray if there is any believer here today that has been downcast, dry, feeling parched, that they might, by the power of the Holy Spirit, feel a renewed strength and a renewed vigor to pursue after Christ as if running a race to win the prize. 
Lord, enlarge our hearts with the beauty and the glory of Christ. Give us the strength to run this race, to have endurance so that we may gain Christ. Father, we can do nothing apart from You. Help us to enter in through the narrow door of the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.